customers don't quite behave that way right they don't they're not going to say oh just because you have conviction about something means they should they should use it right they have a mind of their own so it's a very difficult thing to do but the ability to have strong opinions that are loosely held so that can be again you know very challenging because it requires literally sort of two opposite capabilities right the confidence to say i i know that there's something there there and yet the humility to know that okay you know if the customer doesn't like it there's something wrong that needs to be changed i think that's an important part as well my name is birud shat i'm the founder and ceo of gupshop this is code story a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how Beirut Chef built the messaging platform for enterprises to connect with their consumers. All this and more on Code Story. Beirut Chef grew up in Mumbai, India, and attended undergrad in Bombay. For graduate school, he came to the States to study at MIT and then did a short stint in Wall Street before moving into the entrepreneurial world. He lives in the Bay Area and enjoys hiking, working out, and spending time with his family. He loves the Bay Area for these things, but also because of the community of ideation. The way he puts it, someone is always doing something interesting, and he really enjoys that. Besides business books, he leans towards reading biographies and books about the history of tech and business. Previously, he founded Elance, which is now Upwork, pioneering online freelancing. And 12 or so years ago, he noticed a key insight in that the mobile revolution was happening all around. Within this, the lowest common denominator was the text message, in that not everyone had a smartphone. This got him asking the question, how interesting can these experiences be? This is the creation story of Gupshup. Gupshup is a conversational messaging platform. What that means is, you know, we provide a, a messaging platform that enterprises uh, connect to send messages to their consumers. So typically, you know, an e-commerce company sends out text notifications saying your order is confirmed, your package is arriving. In many countries, every time you swipe a credit card, they send you saying a confirmation saying you spent ten dollars at Starbucks, for example, or you know when your food is arriving, or when your taxi is arriving, and so on. You get all these notifications. Anyway, we provide sort of that messaging platform, that connectivity for businesses to engage their customers in real time. What, what's happening in the space now is previously it used to be just traditional SMS notifications. but now it's becoming richer and more conversational right so you can have rich media images cards buttons inside the message and you can also have a two way conversation so that's the conversational layer coming on top of the messaging layer so that's what we do you know we started a while ago maybe 12 13 years ago and i think the key insight at that time was just this realization that you know the mobile revolution was happening all around us and the lowest common denominator to reach virtually every mobile device was text messaging while the us had smartphones very early i think the rest of the world didn't or still doesn't and therefore 
the lowest common denominator way to reach literally every mobile user is text messaging. So then that begs the question, you know, what can you do with it? How interesting and engaging can those experiences be? For a long time, it was basic, but now it's getting much richer and more advanced. So I think that's where the industry is going. You know, globally, there's uh, two trillion messages sent by businesses to consumers. We are one of the largest players in Asia. That sort of gives you some idea of what we do. Tell me about the MVP. Tell me about you know that first product you built, how long uh, it took to build, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. Our first product wasn't even an enterprise product. It was a consumer product uh, built around text messaging. I distinctly remember that we came up with the same idea as Twitter at about the same time. And uh, the only difference was, many people may not remember anymore, but Twitter was inspired by text messaging, which is why you had this 140 character limit, which of course now they've expanded and so on. But the difference was Twitter was primarily an American or a Silicon Valley product. So even though it was inspired by text messaging, it very quickly became a web-based product, right? With mobile apps and so on. Because we had launched it in India at that time, it remained primarily a text messaging product, right? Because at that time you didn't have as much data connectivity or smartphones and so on in that part of the world. A user could publish a message and then our company Gupshap would uh, broadcast it out to uh, lots of users. There was a time where it grew, it, it became enormously popular. It grew to about 70 million users in India at a time where Facebook and WhatsApp and Twitter had like less than a million users in India, right? So it literally became the biggest uh, social network. That's where the name Gupshap also comes from. So Gupshap is a Hindi word for chit chat, right? And it's sort of very appropriately named for a chat-based service. The great thing was there was a lot of usage. The problem was that each of these messages cost money. We had to pay the mobile operators. And we thought that as the volume increased, uh, these prices would come down because ultimately it's a fixed CapEx game, right, for the mobile operator. Uh, we thought that would happen, but it didn't. And also, you know, the regulators didn't allow any advertising. So we ended up at a point where we could neither subsidize nor monetize all of this traffic. You know, so in a way, that was the MVP, but we had to have a huge pivot saying we have all this platform, all this technology, consumers love it, but we can't pay for it. What do we do? And then we sort of pivoted to saying, okay, well, why don't we just rent this platform and this capability out to businesses who need to do the same thing? They need to communicate with millions of customers themselves. We've figured out all the technology and the infrastructure required to make this all work. So that's how we pivoted from a consumer model to an enterprise model. The enterprises would pay us for these messages, which in turn we could pay the operators for. With every MVP, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs that you make in the short term. Well, tell me about some of those, some of those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how you cope with them. I mean, invariably, when you're building out, uh, you just struggle with the word minimum. You want to make the product full featured. You want to develop every aspect of it so that different kinds of audiences and people could, could use it. But the important thing is to make sure that you're doing just the bare minimum. So I'll talk about after we pivoted to the enterprise side, right? Even at that point, 
you know certain enterprises had super high priority low latency traffic right they want to send out a one time pass password or a credit card notification uh, that has to go out urgently while there were other businesses that wanted to send promotional messages and wanted to optimize for cost right if the message went out maybe 10 minutes later or a half an hour later is not a problem so which do you cater to right what is the mvp some businesses wanted lots of analytics reports tracking again is that within the scope of the minimum viable product versus or or not right so that usually is uh, a lot of the push and pull and then even after you get validation on the mvp you know which customer do you listen to right um is it just the most vocal one or the one that's more representative of the future demand those are the trade offs that you know we had to deal with and and to this day i mean those those issues never go away product prioritization is just a constant challenge of you know how many things can you get done with the resources that you have and the and the timeline that you have in mind you've built the mvp you've had to make some trade offs you've got the product created and you're starting to get you know some some feedback how did you progress the product um how did you mature it and i think i think really what i'm most interested in is is how you built your roadmap how did you decide what was the next most important thing to build so there are different elements to it right one is in the early stages at the mvp stage and so on it's certainly it's super important to talk to the customer right i think it's important for founders and for product leaders to explicitly um, talk to people because sometimes i mean as as engineers we we all get the data and analytics part you know very quickly and easily but sometimes the qualitative element is is missing and i'm not saying you you just listen to what they say without looking at what they're doing right but i think it just sort of what i've seen a lot of entrepreneurs do is they just put too much energy around the data and analytics and just not enough to the qualitative element like why did the customer do what they did or why did they not do what you thought they should so i think just talking and getting that qualitative feedback is is super important i think the other is um, you know you need to know which customers to ignore versus the ones to listen to it's partly depends on what your strategy is where you want to go and of course partly dependent on where uh, the bigger market opportunity is right or the more strategic uh, opportunity is like in the example i was giving earlier you know if you could handle the low lat- latency sort of high priority traffic then it's easy to win the less priority traffic for example right but it's hard to do the other way meaning if you optimize your product for slow going messages then it's harder to optimize it and refine it for for high speed messaging right so so you kind of have to pick as to what's more critical what is the harder bit you know what hill do you want to climb first and then expand to other areas another important thing is you know for version 1 it's hard to listen to customers right it's also difficult for customers to give you feedback about some abstract concept or idea right so you really just have to go with your vision build something and then listen very carefully uh, to to what they're saying so i think it's a it's a constant struggle it's a, it's a challenge you know and of course even as you get bigger now you want to expand in multiple dimensions but you can kind of have to still prioritize I think the maybe the simplest way to describe it is you you need your product to stay somewhat coherent right you can't just slap on things simply based on people's request you just have to say okay this cluster of capabilities if and done together can can access a big market can drive some real 
compelling value. It would give you a competitive differentiator versus, you know, other companies uh, can add unique value uh, to the customer and so on. So I think those are some elements that go into prioritizing specific features. Well, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And I'm interested in, you know, what you look for in these people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you. There are different uh, elements to it, right? So I think uh, one, of course, is a Silicon Valley cliche, right? Uh, A people hire other A people while uh, B people hire C people. So the most important is to get strong, very capable people who are not insecure about their capabilities. They know their strengths and more importantly, their weaknesses and are comfortable surrounding them themselves with other people smarter than themselves in different areas. I think um, oftentimes you'll find people that are insecure about their weaknesses. And weakness is actually the wrong word, right? I mean, no, no one person is perfect in every aspect of what it takes to build a startup, right? So each one of us has the areas of our competence. And by definition, the other areas are places where we are weak. It's easy to tell sometimes when you're interviewing where somebody says, oh, I'm good at everything. And nobody is that, right? So just being aware of it, not being insecure about it is is an important part of, you know, saying, okay, how, how, how do you hire other people and so on? So that's uh, really one part. The other is in the early stages, you know, I like to hire people who are versatile, right? That are not specialized into sort of narrow silos that I only do this. And that's, you know, the other stuff is outside my box because typically, you know, at early stages, you have far fewer people and the amount of things to be done is far greater. So you really need versatile people who have sort of a can-do attitude. You know, there's a there's the commando cliche, right? People who can have this, you know, whatever comes up, will deal with it. And even if, you know, they do it to the best of their ability, because it's important that it get done right then, you know, as opposed to uh, postponing it. So so I think uh, that's, that's another aspect of it. I think uh, customer centricity is super important. Again, by definition, you know, entrepreneurs, founders, or early employees, you don't start a business unless you have a strong point of view about something. Uh, so, so that's a prerequisite that's required to, to build it. But customers don't quite behave that way, right? They don't, they're not going to say, oh, just because you're, you know, you have conviction about something means they should, they should use it, right? They have a mind of their own and will use it only if the product you have fits into their life and adds value to them. So it's a very difficult thing to do, but the ability to have strong opinions that are loosely held, meaning, of course, you go in with an a priori opinion, but when you get data that contradicts it, you also have the ability to listen to it, uh, to absorb it, to adapt to it. So that can be, again, you know, very challenging because it requires literally sort of two opposite capabilities, right? The confidence to say, I, I know that there's something there, there, and yet the humility to know that, okay, you know, if the customer doesn't like it, there's something wrong that needs to be changed. I think that's an important part as well. So these are all, you know, super critical in the early stages uh, where you're trying to build a team. Of course, later on, you know, it changes when you need uh, specialized skill sets and you have a larger organization where you don't want everybody doing, you know, being like this. But, but in the early stages, it's super critical. So let's talk about scalability then. So did you build this in the beginning um, to scale efficiently or are you fighting this as you grow? 
Oh, certainly the latter. Most startups don't have that luxury of being able to build for scale on day one, right? Because you start with, you do an angel round or a small round and so on. There may be some exceptions. Repeat entrepreneurs can start with a huge amount of funding and really, you know, build for scale from day one. But even in that scenario, you know, I subscribe more to this lean product development philosophy because you don't know upfront what you want to scale uh, because you don't exactly know which features or which capabilities the customers value. So even if you could, I mean, I would, I, I think it's it's certainly better to take this sort of incremental, you know, you start with an MVP um, where you're optimizing for speed, right? The speed of learning and iteration. So, so by definition, you're not building it for scale. You're building it for, you know, you're prototyping it, putting it in front of users, getting feedback, talking to them and refining that product market fix. So as that happens, you, you sort of build out the product, but then at some point you say, okay, now it's working. I've found that fit. We need to scale it up. And typically a lot of this technology has to be um, sort of redone and refactored and, and you build it. So, so scale, I think, comes slightly later once you know where the fit is and how to scale it up. In our case, we look at the messaging volumes. We look at the traffic and say, look, we want to be set up for maybe you know, three or four times that capacity. And then when you get closer to, you know, that ceiling, then you sort of raise the ceiling even further. It's sort of incremental. Now, these things have gotten a lot easier with cloud technologies and so on, where you can do, you know, horizontal scaling. Uh, so certainly is a lot easier these days than it used to be. But um, but I would still optimize for speed and learning in the in the earlier stages and scale later. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built with Gupshub, what are you most proud of? Well, there's the value we bring to our customers. That's certainly one important part of it, right? Which is enabling richer engagement for our enterprises, helping them achieve their business objectives for consumers, um, sort of getting more value out of it. I think the other side of it on the internal side is, you know, just um, the, the team we've built, um, the the success that we, that they've had and we've had collectively, just building viable businesses that, that kind of uh, scale up, right? Yeah, I mean, the, really, those are sort of the two main things and the opportunity ahead of us, right? And then that we get a shot to even, you know, work on interesting things with interesting people is, is really sort of the most rewarding aspect of the job. Um, and even, you know, I'll even refer to my previous company, um, Elance or Upwork, where in fact, there was an added gratification where we enabled, you know, millions of freelancers to earn a livelihood in remote parts of the world. And, you know, just sort of creating and enabling this global economy. So the personal impact and the ability to touch millions of lives through your technology is, uh, is really sort of the most gratifying aspect of, you know, uh, of tech entrepreneurship. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake that you made and how did you and your team respond to it? I think lots of them. You're trying to climb a mountain while you're blindfolded or maybe in the dark, right? You can't see anything and you're just sort of feeling your way up and saying, okay, which way does the gradient move up? And maybe I'll sort of go up there and so on, right? So it's it's really, it's inherently challenging, right? It's hard to do. It's uncharted territory. Uh, you, you can't see very far ahead. There's a lot of uncertainty and so on. So the first thing is just sort of, you know, you need a different mental framework, which is to say mistakes will happen. It's inevitable. You don't beat yourself up on it. 
uh, it just becomes part of the planning process saying look we don't know you know so you have yeah of course you have some informed intuition and gut but there's inherently some trial and error and some trials will fail but but the one that succeeds is what you're looking for you know so the first and most important aspect of it is just not to beat yourself up too much with the mistakes right there should in fact be lots of little mistakes because that's how you can learn fast right i think what you want to avoid are the the fatal mistakes where you you know you put all your eggs in one basket that is completely uncertain you know it's sort of literally like you know a lottery ticket right i mean those are the kind of things that you that you don't want to do you a, a lot of it is really you know risk management right so you're sort of uh, diversifying your risk or uh, waiting to you know learn a little more from customer feedback before you bet the farm on it you know i mean i i touched up on this earlier already right i mean the pivot and that's not the only pivot but we've had to do these pivots where you know we we sort of built out this uh, consumer oriented product and platform and ultimately it was based on an assumption that we expected and then come out and you know with hindsight yeah i guess there was a there was a mistake we should have you know uh, but but sometimes it's hard to sort of even test these hypotheses that you know the price would go down as the volume goes up and um, and when you discover that oops you know that's not the case and it's just an existential threat to the business right uh, i guess that's that's a huge that's a, a strategic mistake but you sort of adapt you know you move quickly to say okay well what's working what's not working you know we do have the scale we do have the user engagement you know users love it it's working well people who do use it really love it but you know there's an economic problem right there's no business model around it so then you say but who could benefit from it who could pay for it and so on and as you go through this sort of process of analysis and evaluation and this is something you know it's not just a one off you're doing it constantly saying you know what could go wrong what could i discover that could sort of put my you know existing business at risk or uh, you know what could go what could fail uh, and so on right so you're constantly doing this sort of self correction process um, so yeah i think that's that's what we did and it's really hard to change course a little bit um to take the team along i think it can create anxiety especially you know for first time entrepreneurs or first time employees on the other hand i think as you you know as you work through this again it goes back to that intellectual humility you know don't personalize it uh, this kind of stuff is part for the course it happens and you just you just have to parse through the nuances to figure out what's working what's not working and do more of what's working you know do less of uh, of what's not i think it also helps to have mentors advisors you know board members uh, who can give you an outside in perspective sometimes you could be too close right so you want to get that outside in perspective as well uh, oftentimes that 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 helps a lot so what does the future look like for your product and for your team you know the future is um, is super exciting i think we have the you know as as messaging becomes uh, richer and more conversational i think uh, this is a, a really big deal uh, i think conversational experiences and interfaces uh, will be all pervasive right it's a little bit like the old star trek show right where you just sort of say computer you know get me this or what about that and you see a little bit of this happening already with an alexa or a google assistant right on the voice side 
but even on the tech side uh, you're going to see a, a lot of that happening with chatbots and and ai really all the interfaces that we deal with like say websites and mobile apps which are very structured and rigid interfaces with screens tabs and buttons uh, i do believe are all going to get transformed and replaced by conversational experiences right so instead of people behaving like computers you'll have computers behaving like people it's a very natural and intuitive way to to interact with things and it would be contextual and it the computer knows who you are and your identity and can verify it and so on so the opportunity we have with our product is to enable this sort of conversational future right so so that's what we are really excited about you know these things happen sort of once a decade right i mean when we went from the desktop era to the web era or from the web era to the mobile app era uh you can you know i can sense sort of a similar tide you know that's that's rising and every business every developer every service is going to have to modify their offerings to to enable these sort of interactions you know that's that's what we see and then to enable this you know we have to ramp up our team you know sort of expand build out our our vision our product and and so on and sort of excited about uh, about that it's it's um, very interesting So let's switch to you, Birud. Uh, who influences the way that you work? Yeah, a CEO, CTO, architect, to really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. <laughs> you know, I think uh I think more than a soundbite. I mean, I try to, you know, I try to absorb influences from as many diverse people as I can, right? So for example, I I lean on my board members a lot. You know, we have uh, an an amazing board that has a ton of experience and perspective who are supportive and yet keep challenging me and keep pushing me further. I certainly learn a lot from them, learn from customers, right? I'm always eager and curious. I tell my team to always put me in front of some customer somewhere because they're truly honest and they'll tell you stuff they like or don't like and uh, this uh, invaluable lessons and learning that you can get from that that can sort of feed into your next uh, strategy and product iteration i also like internally working with engineers for example or even you know sometimes i mean we tend to you know ascribe value to years of experience or you know prior track record and so on but look while i used to be great at let's say coding once upon a time right i'm 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 clearly not up to date on the other hand some some kid fresh out of school right is an is an expert at that and i just find there's so much you can learn based on you know what what's new what's going on it just sort of we live in such a dynamic environment that it's really hard to say you know so so of course you know there are some role models like uh, i don't know steve jobs or or things like that and and certainly there's many many lessons to be had from that but but i think that you know the risk of oversimplifying it's not like any one person can can really truly influence all the things you're doing because in my day-to-day life i have to do a lot of this right i have to triangulate the high level strategic and let's say financial and fundraising goals with the day-to-day strategy with product development with sales and so on so i think there's uh, i guess maybe the simplest way to put it is my job is really connecting the dots right and therefore having lots of in diverse influences and being able to synthesize that into sort of a coherent whole i think it's it's that's that's a hard part so i look for influences from very diverse sources yeah well if you could go back to the beginning what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach 
I, I try not to think that way too much because I find it unhelpful. Now, I'm not trying to say that you you shouldn't introspect about what you did and what you could do differently and and so on, right? But the challenge with that is a, a lot of these decisions are, you know, let's take the Super Bowl analogy. You're sort of on the field in the heat of the moment where things are happening. Now, of course, you know, Monday Monday morning quarterbacking is all fine and good, but you're not there in the split second when some of these decisions have to be made. And it's really hard to come back and look at it. Now, what you can and should do is saying, okay, if I'm put in a similar situation in the future, here's how I could have prepared better and anticipated better and done things. And this is what I'm going to do going forward. So it's not in the sense of having any regrets for what happened, but in terms of sort of getting better, right? So I think, so in that respect, I mean, look, when I was a rookie entrepreneur, there's just a lot of things. I don't know if I would change it or could change it because by definition, you know, you're a rookie entrepreneur and some of these things are, are experiential. You can't read it in a book. You really just have to sort of experience, you know, uh, negotiations, for example, or recruiting or, you know, hiring and firing uh, people that are not a fit and, and so on. So I think these are things that, you know, you just inform yourself, inform your intuition and gut as you as you go along. You just have to keep be even keeled, uh, you know, not get too excited or more importantly, too discouraged when bad things happen and so on. Right. So a lot of these things um, are taking a slightly longer perspective. Right. When you when you're in the moment, oftentimes it feels like oh, the short term sometimes outweighs the, the longer term, right? So, but I think with just with some experience and age and wisdom, I guess they call it, you, you get a better better perspective on it. So, so honestly, no, no regrets. I think all the good and the bad things have led to where I am. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have had, a, you know, at least one successful IPO and hopefully soon another one as well, right? So I think... Um, by, I mean, by any measure, I think that's uh, that's pretty good. But uh, but I think all the bad stuff and all the mistakes are kind of what what led me to to this journey and got me where I am. Yeah. Well, last question, Birud. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? So let's say they, they they have something that's super exciting or that they are excited about. Focus on the real drivers of value and don't get distracted. There will be a ton of distractions, right? So don't get distracted by the other stuff, which means is what you're building useful to your customers? Are they willing to pay you for it? Are there a lot of customers like it, which will allow you to scale? Can you be careful as you're building out the team, right? Keep values and culture at the, at the core of it, especially if it scales up very rapidly don't believe the pr don't get distracted by those things uh, don't get distracted if uh, there's a lot of investments that are chasing you i think it's good but ultimately you know the real success uh, yeah i think just focus on the critical success drivers which is you know like i said your your product your strategy your customers uh, i mean that's that's sort of the ground truth right that's the only sort of real truth because all the other stuff is is noise and distraction it's important right i'm not saying it's it's not you know your fundraising strategy you know how you structured the business i mean there's lots of elements to it but if those end up becoming the focus at the exclusion of you know the, i think missing out on your customers and so on and and their feedback i think that's where sort of you start losing the plot 
so i think i think if you if you get this right all the other stuff very likely will fall into place and on the other hand if you get this wrong then it doesn't matter what else you've done right it 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 won't matter so just just realize what the what the key focus should be the ground truth should be and the rest will take care of itself well that's great advice well biru thank you for being on code story today thank you for telling the creation story of gupshup thank you so much for having me noah and this concludes another chapter of code story code story is hosted and produced by noah labhart Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.